You're listening to Beyond the Clinic, Living Well with Melanoma, a podcast produced by Aim at Melanoma, the foundation working to end melanoma. Hosted by the Director of Cancer Survivorship for Kaiser Permanente San Francisco, Dr. Raymond Liu. Beyond the Clinic features topics seldom discussed in the exam room, but essential to patients and their families during and beyond treatment. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an aim at melanoma endorsement. Cancer research discussed in this podcast is ongoing, so the data described here may change as research progresses. Hi, everyone. Welcome to AIM Melanoma's Beyond the Clinic podcast series. Have you ever wondered what is the difference between religion or spirituality, or how to find meaning during a diagnosis or treatment of melanoma? We're going to explore these topics with our special guest today, Michael Esselin, the Dr. John Glaspie Chaplain in Oncology Care at Sims Mann UCLA Center for Integrative Oncology. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining our program today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So maybe we can start with some definitions. Um, can you help us understand what is the definition of spirituality? Uh, certainly. For, for, and this is just for me. Um, I go back to the Latin root of the word, which is spiritus, and it only means breath. So when we say you inspire someone, uh, it means you give them breath. When someone expires, it means breath leaves them. So for me, one spirituality is what is it that breathes life into your life? What is it that makes it worth living? What is it makes it worth fighting this awful treatment to get through this cancer? So that can be someone's religious faith or tradition or community, uh, but it could also be one's family, their dog, their work. Um, a great round of golf. I had a patient once who was an avid runner. He was very adamant that he wanted me to know that he was an atheist. It didn't matter to me at all. But when he talked about running, he was describing a religious experience. And when his cancer treatment meant that he couldn't run anymore, it became a spiritual crisis. So for me, religion is a subset of spirituality. Well, and I think we talk a lot in our in, in terms of when we're providers, we think about goals of care and discussing what these goals are. And so we try to understand what's important for people. And they say things like, yes, it's it's my ability to move. It's, it's living day to day. Is that the same thing or is that a little bit different? I think that's definitely foundational. It's part of the same thing. Um, spiritual meaning of life stuff can be very small like that. It could be my cat falling asleep on my lap makes me feel like all is right with the world. It can be that small. It can also be, I want my the world to be a better place for my grandchildren that I'll never meet. And so uh, it's very important to me that I make a difference to make the world better. It can be a very grand thing. It can be a very small thing. For me as a chaplain, I think the important thing is to be a witness to it being a changeable thing. It is not a fixed thing. Some people start their cancer diagnosis and journey very certain of what's important, what's meaningful in the world. And by the time two, three, four, five years, everything has shifted. Uh, I once had a, a, a man, a prostate cancer patient who was diagnosed with stage four, but he wasn't ill. And he, it, the news just didn't kind of get to him. He came to see me not to talk about his diagnosis, but to talk about his new purpose in life. He needed to find a new purpose because he was retired. 
as he got sicker and sicker, he was also deeply rooted in a Protestant faith tradition that sort of told him that God had his back and he was special and there's a bigger purpose for me. I'm not going to die from this. And then the disease took him down. And when I went to see him on the last day of his life at home, he said, you know, this waiting around to die is just killing me, Michael. You know me. I need something to look forward to. He said, you've always told me about your deep faith. And the whole centerpiece of that Christian faith is that it's better on the other side. He said, hell, I don't even know if I believe in that anymore. So the thing that had gotten him through life with some kind of certainty didn't hold water in the end. So I think our relationship to change, to an allowance for that meaning to shift and change. I thought it was about making a lot of money. I thought it was about getting a big house, a new car. I thought it was like getting my kid into Harvard. No, it was really always about just enjoying a meal with my family. Well, that's such a powerful story because it speaks to how personal um, that de- those those the decisions, the the feelings are, and then also how much is changing um, over time. And it sounds like it's something that even changes before someone's diagnosis. So, is this something that we're we're all just going through in our lives, or is there something special that cancer brings to this? I think cancer speeds it all up into a compressed mm-hmm. time frame, and the stakes get much higher. I think if we are lucky enough to live a very long life, we're going to go through that. I just read the most fascinating article in Atlantic. It's a few years old now about um, these shifts and these high power people who are super high achievers don't do well at end of life when they're clinging to the goals of their life when they were 40 or 50 versus Hmm. what life offers when they're 60, 70 or 80. So I think cancer compresses all of that. If my time frame looks shortened or possibly shortened, um, Everything is up for grabs in terms of what matters and what I'm willing to go through and not go through. Uh, I see patients who want to sign up for um, aid and dying medication that are, they're so certain I am not, when the time comes, I am not going to go through that suffering. And they end up not taking it and their lives get smaller and smaller and they shrink, but they find meaning in smaller and smaller things that still make it worth showing up. So... Our relationship to change, I think, is critical in our ability to to ride this wave spiritually with some kind of grace, to know that what's true in this moment may not be true five minutes from now and certainly not true next week or 10 years from now. I think that concept of change is, is so important. And do you think it gets easier as we have more experience, so, so-called wisdom, so we've had lived experience and as, as we get older, do you think it's easier? Or in some ways, it's, it really is just depends on the person and so many other factors. So many other factors. I'd sure like to think that because I am blessed to be able to do this kind of work and have these meaningful conversations day in and day out, that I would be so skilled at this. <laughs> and I am not. I am a raw beginner. I still cling to, but this isn't what I signed up for. I wanted something different. I wanted something more. I, I, did, I didn't want my life to turn out this way. All, I want it the way that it was. But I used to be able to do this and I can't do this now. Uh, I cling to that. So part of me, for me, the other piece of, of spiritual skill, for lack of a better word, in riding this wave is offering ourselves grace to be however we are with some humility. As soon as I think I know and I understand something, something's going to happen and just pull the rug right out from under me. So what's my relationship to that kind of earthquake or that tsunami? Can I be willing to laugh at myself. Oh, I thought I understood this, and I'm, I'm, I'm just as terrified and upset and angry as everybody else. 
you mentioned some some things that also struck a chord with me when when I talk to patients. Sometimes they they ask the question, you know, why me? They're sort of going through this whole like, who are they? It's sort of like sort of, they're trying to understand themselves. And as you said, it's in this compressed time frame, and they come understand trying to understand why the cancer is affecting them and what the relationship is. Is that also part of the spirituality as well? Oh, I would absolutely say that's part of it. And I see patients who say. Oh, I've never asked why me. And they say that with a kind of pride, like that makes me somehow a little more spiritually elevated. I say, why not me? Even those folks over time, I do see patients over a long course of time often because we're on the outpatient side. I can have a relationship with somebody for five or 10 years from diagnosis. Somewhere along the way, I still wish I understood why this happened which implies also that things happen for a reason, which is another mm -hmm. article of faith a lot of people hold, religious and secular alike. I just believe everything happens for a reason. Can't know what it is, but somehow that gives them some peace. To go draw near to a place, is it possible that there's no reason for this whatsoever, spiritually, or um, is too painful, that it somehow would bring me comfort if I had reason? And yet I will sometimes also ask a patient, if I could give you a sealed envelope right now with your name on it, and inside that envelope is the reason why you have this cancer, would you open the envelope? And if you did, would you suffer less or suffer more to read it? It's because you ate too many Big Macs in high school. It's because you spent too much time in the sun, or it's your karma. You were a bad person in a former life, or it's just your bad luck, or you're the one who chose to live in Los Angeles and get in the sun all the time. Are you going to feel better? Or are you going to then live with more regret? Um, it may, it might be a delusion that if I had a reason, I would be at peace or be at more peace with this diagnosis. And when, when people say that, how do you help get to the healing process? Is it a matter of acknowledgement and, and listening? Or is there are there real techniques that we can we can deploy to help people understand, you know, why they're even asking the question, maybe? Um, I come back to... Uh, I, 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 I hear the desire to have some, some tips and some step-by-step, -step, <laughs> how do you reach healing? And you reach it by saying, I don't have any answers and none exist, and I'm here to walk beside you, and we'll mm -hmm. just be in awe with some humility and patience and compassion, most of all. Compassion at its Latin root, compati, only means with suffering to be with it, not to fix it or correct it or advise it or compare it. Look, at least it couldn't be, it could be worse. You're not suffering as much as that person. That's not a compassionate response. A compassionate response is sitting and being with it. And that's compassion for myself as well as compassion for others. I see people in the infusion clinic who might have a highly treatable cancer and they look across the room and see somebody very, very ill with a terminal diagnosis. And they say, what am I crying about? Look at that poor person, but I, I'm just so upset. It's not a suffering sweepstakes here. You're still entitled to compassion. You are still entitled to be with your own suffering and to have someone be with you. I, I do a lot of speaking in my work, and uh, years ago I talked to the cancer support community to an audience of cancer patients, and afterward there was a Q&A, and this woman says, what do you think is the meaning of life? As if I have that answer. And mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't wait for my response, and she says, I think the meaning of life is that everyone wants to be known, not mm -hmm. as in famous, but as in seen and witnessed. And I, I dismissed it in my at the time with my judging mind. I didn't say it out loud, but I kind of thought, well, gosh, that's way too simplistic. But thanks for the question, dear. Is there another question out there? 
I've quoted her 10,000 times since because I think she came wow. close to hitting it on the mark. I'm a witness to others in their suffering. And, I, and my faith tells me that being a witness, being a companion, um, there is healing in that. that. That may look like one thing, it may look like another thing, but I trust that it's going to be better than it would be if you were walking this path alone. There was a wonderful film, hysterical film, about 10, 15 years ago called Little Miss Sunshine. And their their families traveling across country to get their little girl in a beauty contest. And the the teenage son, his dream was to be a pilot. And in, in the during the drive, he's taken one of those little colorblind tests in a magazine in the backseat of the van, and he discovers he's colorblind. So there goes his dream out the window. He jumps out of the van. He's out in the desert. And the mom, he won't do anything. And the mom says to the little girl, go talk to your brother. She goes and sits next to him. She doesn't say a word. She just sits in silence. And then eventually she kind of leans over to him and gives him a little nudge of the shoulder. And he says, okay, let's go. That's compassion. That's healing. That's This news has to sink in. I have to take it in. You're here with me. You see this is awful. Okay, now I can go forward. That's how I see my role. And we can all be that for each other. That's an amazing lesson for me. It's one of the reasons I went into oncology was to be that witness and, and to be there um, to listen. And at the same time, as oncologists, we're in the busy practice. And sometimes we lose that, right? Because we're trying to make sure we talk about the scientific aspects of things when in reality, it's really um being there to listen and, and bear witness. And it sounds to me what you're saying too, is this is something that that friends and caregivers could also uh, be part of um, to make sure that we're on the Absolutely. journey together. And, and, yeah. and don't, I'm not, re- mm-hmm. I'm not remotely saying this is easy. I hear from patients constantly about friends who are incapable of hearing the suffering, that they feel like they have to put a face on, mm-hmm. a happy face to, how are things going? Oh, great, I'm really hopeful about the new drug trial I'm on. Uh, so they're taking care of the friend or the family member by saying that when they really want to say, I am so cooked, I'm ready to give up. I can't do this anymore. But as soon as they say that, most people will say, oh, don't talk that way. Look at all you've got to live for, blah, 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 which all that does is make them feel more isolated. That's not a compassionate response at all. I hear patients say almost universally that everybody's got an idea of what they should do. Oh, have you heard about this clinic in Mexico? I read about this place in Germany. Oh, there, there's a specialist that you got to go to my acupuncturist. You got to say this prayer. You got to go to my prayer meeting. You got to eat more kale, whatever it is. None of that is a compassionate response of, I see you. This is just terrible, period. Nothing to say, nothing to do. And trusting that that in itself is healing because you're affirming their reality by suggesting you have a way to make it better or to fix it is not affirming their reality. What made you so smart that you think you could do this better than I can? You think I haven't turned every rock over to look for every option and I decided to trust this doctor, this drug protocol for you to suggest I should somehow give that up because you've got a better idea is so disrespectful to me and the journey I've walked. And if, and if that drug trial fails, it's not your place to say, I told you so, I wish you'd got, eaten more kale or gone to Germany. It's, oh God, I'm so sorry, period. Really hard to sit in that pain with somebody, but that is a compassionate healing response. That's being a witness. 
Yeah, I can imagine how difficult it is because we're in today's world so action oriented, right? We want to do something, we want to help, and it, it's hard. It is so, so hard. I've do. struggled with depression in my life. My sister loves me to death, and she's always got an idea, and I know she works hard to to assuage that. But you know, when I, sometimes I, I'm depressed, I'm, I'm just so overwhelmed. Have you thought of going to a therapist? Gee, a therapist? Why didn't <laughs> I think of that? What a novel suggestion! I'm talking to you right now. I want you to hear that I hurt and I'm sad. Hmm. So how do we like also internally think about it for ourselves when, when we're going through this, you know, what is, I want to sort of explore the the idea of like self-talk. Um, so what are some things you hear about people telling themselves and, and how, how do we deal with the, the person we're, we're hearing, hearing about most, which is ourselves? Yes. The biggest, the two big things that I think come up pretty consistently with folks is what some of my patients call the tyranny of positive thinking. That mm-hmm. people hear it in the culture and they tell it themselves, I got to be positive. Everybody knows attitude changes everything, which there's no scientific basis for that. You can have the most positive a- attitude in the world and the cancer can take your life and you could be the most negative um, person in the world and you can survive. Um, the attitude affects how you experience the journey. It doesn't have a, a net effect on the outcome. And so people will often punish themselves. I remember hearing a woman, oh, I threw myself quite a pity party yesterday, but no more. That's it. Everybody knows you got to be positive. I just know this is going to work. And you can hear the tension in her voice as she's saying it because she's also judging herself for even that term of pity party. What a horrible expression uh, that every religious tradition on the planet upholds compassion as a revered virtue. If we feel compassion for someone else, it's virtuous. If we feel compassion for yourself, we call it self-pity. Got to get out of that. Don't do it. And obviously, there's a difference between somebody who uses that kind of uh, self-pitying language as a way of navigating through life and maybe manipulating others, but just saying, I really hurt today. I'm so sick of this nausea, whatever the thing is. It's not self-pity. It's, it's self-compassion. So that's one piece that... Resisting that thing of how I should be. I should be feeling grateful because look, I have a great doctor. Look, I'm lucky enough to go to UCLA. Look, look, look at all the positives. There's days you can't see that and you shouldn't have to. Holiday time can be really hard for cancer patients when the whole world demands that you feel grateful. I don't feel grateful. That has to be okay. And I believe that's a doorway to greater peace, to allowing yourself to be however you are in any given moment. That's one piece. The other piece is comparing suffering, which I kind of talked to uh, uh, to before about this idea that it could be worse, so you should be grateful. It could also be a lot better. And yes, I'm not a Ukrainian refugee, and yes, I'm not a Syrian refugee, and yes, my kids aren't starving, but I have still got a cancer diagnosis, and it's disrupted my career, and it's disrupted my parenting, or whatever the thing is. Um, it's not a compassionate response. Sometimes we use that, it could be worse as a way to snap ourselves awake into an attitude of gratitude, and that could be helpful, but more often than not, I find that people use it as a weapon against themselves. I'm not having the right attitude. And they've got people in the world ready to tell them that. 
it is, it's so interesting when we th- we think about this because we've covered some of these in other topics. For example, we've done a d- done a you know a, a session on something called po- toxic positivity. We've done some sessions on holidays, and they're all seeming to come together in terms of these common themes that that we're hearing about. Yeah. Um, so that's 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 amazing. So there must be something <laughs> to these these themes. Um, what about having um, just how, so how do we how do we think through some of these things when those thoughts happen? Um, how do we reflect on that and and is it is it one size fits all? And I'm, I'm assuming you're going to say no, but help help guide us through yes. this a little bit more. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not one size fits all. I'm a big one for metaphors, so images work well for me. Thich Nhat Hanh, mm-hmm. who passed away recently, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners are aware of him. I heard once talk about um, you can't reason with a baby. Uh, you A baby's crying. You can't say, um, stop crying. You've got nothing to cry about. You're a lucky baby. All you can do is hold the baby and say they're there tenderly to your chest. And when I'm swallowed up by feelings of pain, I've been uh, forsaken. I've been betrayed. I My body has betrayed me. I'm so angry. I... I I, I don't deserve this. All those feelings that were also quick, ready to judge in an instant. If we could envision those feelings as a wrapped up baby that we're going to just hold to our chest and just say, there, there, I know. You can't, a dog is quaking because there's fireworks at 4th of July. You can't reason with the dog. You can just hold the dog, try to keep it quiet, pet it. It's okay. I'm here. That's a compassionate response. That's a way through those feelings, but not judging the feelings. I, One image I've used in the past, I grew up in Long Beach and um, every spring the lifeguards would give a water safety assembly and they tell us what to do if you got caught in a riptide. Don't swim against it. You're gonna drown. Hmm. Um, let it carry you out, surrender to it. And when you can swim out of it, parallel to shore, rest up, get your bearings and then swim back. It's a wonderful image for the, when, when I'm swallowed up by those feelings of victimhood. This wasn't supposed to happen. It's not fair. It's in, unjust. If that doctor had just done this test sooner, I would have still be. But whatever the thing is, I can't talk myself out of that sometimes. Let it carry me out. And when I can, swim out of it and then swim back to shore. It's kind of like that character in, in uh, Little Miss Sunshine. I have to sit on this rock and stare into space for a while and get my bearings in this new reality. I see patients when they're newly diagnosed that say, I should be X, Y, and Z. I said, you've just had an earthquake in your life. It's a tsunami. And if you think of that image of a tsunami in the South Pacific or something, and villagers walking around with a dazed expression, they can't find their house, they can't find their street, they can't find their village. I have to get my new bearings in this reality before I can do anything. And so I need that time, real time, to just kind of wander around in the rubble of what was my life. And the one thing that's great about searching through rubble is I get to decide what's worth keeping that's still here and what I can Mm -hmm. throw away. There's a picture of my grandma. I don't want to lose that. I loved her. This I never liked anyway. Toss it away. And then decide if I'm even going to build a house here again or not. But that time in the rubble is a critical time with a a new diagnosis, with uh, disease progression, whatever the news is that may not be good. Oh, I got to get my bearings here. 
But if I'm judging myself, I saw a woman once newly diagnosed with cancer and her husband just died three days earlier. And she says, I haven't gotten anything done in the last two days with this huge self-judgment. In what universe would anybody expect you to be Miss Get It Done today and cross things off your list? Mm -hmm. You've got two big blows. We got to give it some time. So we've talked about compassion sort of from how do we as friends or caregivers or providers provide compassion. Here we're talking about self-compassion right. and acceptance, right? That, that right. this is something that we need our time. We, we need to forgive ourselves and, and, and take that time to work through what, what is meaningful and, and what is important. Right. How, how do you see that? And again, this must be very individual. Some people can move through that faster and accept that change. Some people are, are, are having a harder time and that's okay too. Right. Absolutely. Okay. We just have to, everybody doesn't learn math at the same rate. Everybody does. It's a skill. Compassion is a skill. It's a quality, but it's also a skill and it takes practice. So, we have to be, I, you know, I'm, I'm a slow learner. Kill me. Is it a crime to be a slow learner? You know, I, I'll hang out here with you. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to a little bit about the, the imagery, because you mentioned imagery is important, too. You know, one of the things that I, I hear a lot of people talk about is they, 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 they use imagery to think about um, the meaning in life and, and where they are. And it feels like the cancer is taking on a lot of that. In other words, everything is about the cancer. Yes. The um the meaning of life is really about doing another treatment or it's, it's about a war with cancer. And, um, and is, is that okay? Or, you know, how do we, how do we understand that, that structure? Every, in my view, everybody's got their way of conceptualizing their relationship to cancer. I have far more patients that reject that imagery of war and battle. And that imagery is so pervasive in our culture. Every obituary you read, Oh, he lost his battle with lung cancer. He fought battle bravely. It doesn't need to be seen as that. It, some people say, I'm not, I don't want to be at war with my own body. I want to love my body. I want to love it so well that that cancer just releases and goes back to wherever it came from. It's a very different way than saying it's a video game and, and the chemo is eating the cells. If that works for you, great. But the language of war also means there's winners and losers. And I don't, even if this cancer takes my life, I don't want to see myself as a loser. I engaged with a disease. I engaged with a process. It's part of life. Um, if it becomes this success failure paradigm, I'm setting myself up for suffering. One woman that I had, I love this image. She said, I'm dancing with my cancer and I see it as a waltz with a tiger and I'm waltzing the tiger back into its cage. That's a very different thing than war and battle and struggle. I see. In that, in that case, you're it's you you're recognizing you're not in denial that this is a very dangerous thing. That it's a right. It's a creature of its own. It has a mind of its own. But at the same time, that dance that dance is it's, it's it, you're right. It's different than a, a battle per se. Um, yeah, I understand. You know, we've we've covered. Uh, you know, the time always goes by. It's it's been you know. Um, such a pleasure being able to speak with you. You know, we've talked a lot about just this the existential issues of suffering and meaning and, and how we, we think about compassion and um, how personal and changing it is. Um, in, in sort of our closing minutes, what are some other things that you, you hear a lot about and you want to make sure our listeners um, can understand? Oh, gosh. I cannot stress enough to, just to underscore what we've talked about, my relationship to change and to be 
more curious, to be more fascinated than fearful. Isn't it interesting that I find myself at peace with this and a willingness to find meaning in the smallest things? I had a patient who took advantage of the end of life uh, aided dying medication, and she uh, had told her husband, um, I think it's time for me to take the medication. They've been married forever. They, she was a very religious woman. And uh, he said, she said, I think I'm going to take it tomorrow. Well, why not take it tonight? I have too much to do, she said. Well, what do you have to do? I've got some bills to pay. And, and I've got some thank you notes to write and some birthday cards to send. I'll help you do that. The last night of her life spent doing the most mundane tasks around a dining table. But tasks that are rooted in kindness, in connection, if we could say that might be the meaning of life in itself, and it took that many years to get to this is all it ever was, sitting around the table with you, writing a birthday card, paying a bill, can that be enough? I had a, I worked with a colleague once who worked with a rabbi who posited the idea that our whole life's purpose might be fulfilled in one five-minute conversation with a stranger. We live our lives thinking it's all about my work. It's all about this. It's about what I achieved, how much money I made. Did my kids go to school? It might have been the way you talked to that uh, grocery clerk, and it really made her day because she was having a hard day, and you just really listened for a few moments. I don't know that that's true or not. I like it as a humbling concept that maybe my whole life was just for this moment right now. And if we can live like that, then every moment becomes meaningful. This conversation right now with you, right, is meaningful because it's just it's all we got in a way um i think i've seen your analogies in some of your other talks it's like riding a wave right it's the kind of being yes. there to and you did the surfing analogy but earlier but it's it's like being there again being witness and being compassionate and 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 being present i guess for for, for that and that the, knowing the wave will probably ultimately swallow me up up mm -hmm. and i'm going to do it anyway with as much joy as i can fascination with the process even with the fear oh my god i never knew i could be this frightened oh michael you've given us so many things to think about and and to to, to ponder thank you so much for coming in uh for this podcast series and and we value your time and and as i said this is this has been valuable and meaningful for me so thank you so much for 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 giving that meaning to me oh, as well <laughs> i love this thank you i hope we can do it again sometime right thank you for more information on this topic, please visit aimandmelanoma.org. If this podcast was useful, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Google Play, or Spotify. This podcast offers insight into the world of melanoma care, covering a range of educational, inspirational, and scientific content. You can find all shows, including this one, at aimandmelanoma.org. Aim at Melanoma is a global foundation dedicated to finding more effective treatments and ultimately the cure for melanoma 